Welcome to the True North Podcast. This podcast is about navigating through today's culture in the direction that lands at the heart of God. Let's go. We've been talking a lot about communion with God over the last couple of weeks, so we're not really going to differ from that too much. But before we get started, I'm going to go ahead and pray. God, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, for another opportunity, God, to wake up, to come in to your presence, God, and to fellowship with fellow believers. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your power. I thank you for your anointing. I thank you, Lord, that you use regular old people like me, God, people that other people would just throw away, somebody that other people would look at or reject or think think that they're not worthy to be in this position. But God, I thank you that you chose me and you've chosen every single one of us this morning. God, I thank you. I surrender myself to you. Let these not be my words, God, but let them be your words straight from heaven. Push me to the side, God, and speak through me this morning. I thank you that every heart and every mind is open to hear what you have to say this morning. I thank you that it comes from a heart of love and a heart of understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to be talking about what does following Jesus look like in our community? So we have to remember that followers of Jesus, a.k.a. followers of the way, as as Pastor Lindsay has taught us, um, we are called to reach our community. So we find that is one of our very, very, very like most powerful instructions that Jesus gave us. It was actually the last instructions he gave us before he ascended into heaven. So if you have your Bibles, the first place we're going to go this morning is Mark chapter 16, and we're going to do verses 15 through 16, and I'm going to read it out of the New King James Version. Um, But you will know this once you pull it up or once you hear it, that it's the Great Commission. And we're familiar with that. If you've been in church any amount of time, you've heard the Great Commission talked about over and over and over and over again. But one of the things that I I think is the most powerful about the Great Commission is I heard when I was in Bible college, one of my favorite Bible college teachers taught about this scripture. And she said that they were they were kind of talking and the, the disciples were not really paying much attention in the moment. And Jesus said to them through gritted teeth like when you research it out this was an instruction to them that they had to follow by that they had to listen by it wasn't just oh a passing thought or you know Jesus would talk to them in parables a lot of times and sometimes they would okay yeah we understand you Jesus we hear you but this was something that was so important that he said it to them not just in a normal tone but with intention in his heart and intention in his delivery So Mark chapter 16, 15 and 16 says, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes will be saved and he who does not will be condemned. Now, once again, he didn't just go into all the world and preach the gospel. He didn't make it all fluffy and beautiful because he knew the weight that that statement carried. He knew the instruction that not just, you know, man, this is a good idea, but the divine instruction, you were called to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, I love how it says every creature. Not every translation says that. But I think about in the world that we live in and in the society we live in, not everybody looks necessarily like a human being anymore. Sometimes they don't necessarily look like what we think a man or a woman should look like anymore. But the Bible says that we are called to preach and to reach them with the love of Jesus, no matter what they look like, no matter what they sound like, no matter what they have on. We literally are called to love everybody, especially the people in our community. It's so great for us to pray for missions and pray for people across the world. And they're having a really difficult time in China right now um, with the church. They're really attacking the Christian church in China. And it's it's really like they've even set up like facial recognition cameras. At least that's the article I read. So they've set up facial recognition cameras and they're near churches, near places that they know people join together to worship our one true God. And they are watching and seeing who it is. And then they're arresting them and prosecuting them. 
And we know the Bible has been outlawed in China. And again, once again, they've reiterated that, that it is a capital punishment to be caught worshiping. There was even a picture that they posted online of somebody in the middle of speaking and they rushed in and, and arrested them while they were talking, talking about Jesus. And it's great to pray for them. And we have to pray for them. But we also have to pray for our community. Our biggest mission has to be to our community first. If we're not reaching our community, we can't reach the world. Amen. So like I said, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about being in communion with God or also being one with God. So communion is being one with God. But what does that look like in regards to our community? So if you think about it, like literally you can't even say the word community without almost saying communion, right? It's the same root word. So it's the same beginning. So community means a group of people that are in common unity or like-mindedness. Communion is to be in common agreement or to be one. So we are called to be one with our community. Now, it doesn't mean that we are to be like our community, but we are to influence our community into a way that they look like us, that they look like Jesus. We should be one with Jesus, right, in communion with Jesus. So we should look like Jesus, and we should take that same attitude towards our community and change our community to help our community look like Jesus. But we can't do that until we get things in order, right? So you can have every outreach in the world, but if you're not in unity with one another, there will be no longevity. So when I said that, or when I wrote that down, the Holy Spirit brought to my mind a picture of a hot air balloon. And I'm like, well, that's kind of weird, but okay. But in a hot air balloon, you get into the hot air balloon basket, right? And you pray that the person you're in there knows what they're doing. And they have the sandbags or they do whatever. They unleash the tie and then they turn the gas on or the propane on and the flame shoots up and that hot air is what causes the air to go, the, the go into the balloon and the balloon to rise, right? Okay, so we get in the basket, we turn the propane on, we go up. And we're hoping that we stay up until we're ready to come down. So we're up there, we're doing whatever. So when we are in communion with God, and when we are reaching our community, when we have outreaches like that, without communion with God, there's no longevity. So it'd be like getting in that basket of that hot air balloon, being up there, great. We're at the top of the apex. We've done this big outreach. We've had lots of people come to Jesus and whatever, and then turning the gas off and boop, you just go back down. So without unity, without being in one mind and one accord, we won't have any long-lasting change. We have to keep the propane turned on. We have to be in unity. The person that is doing the work, keeping the propane at the right levels, if you turn it too much, it's going to go too high and burn. If you turn it too low, it's going to sink. So you've got to be ready to be in unity with God. We have to be one with what God has called us to do. We have to be one with what God has called us to do to reach our community so that whenever we do have outreaches or whenever we do, and trust me, we have them in mind. We know exactly what we want to do to reach our community. Not everything, but some things that we want to do to help make an impact. But we know that we have to be in the right place to be able to sustain the growth that comes with that. Because people are looking. People are looking and they're searching for somewhere to go to get hope. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But how do we have unity? How do we have unity? The number one way is love. Without love, unity can't exist. And not just like a little bit of love or I say I love you or whatever. But we have to have the kind of love that God has for people, which is a love that is absent from impurities separate from hate, and the opposite of judgmental. Um, I love that you all sang that song this morning. I honestly didn't know you were going to sing it. And then you got up here and started talking, and you could have preached my whole sermon, and that's okay too, which is awesome because that shows we flow. Because I didn't share anything with him. I shared just the title because he didn't want to hear it. He's like, I want to I wanna listen, and I want to take notes. I'm like, okay, that's great. I appreciate that. However, I need to like get some of this out so I had to call my mom so my mom shout out to my mom she helped me with my sermon 
just listen so I could process my thoughts verbally because I'm a very verbal person. I like to write things down, but I like to talk. If you know me, you know that I like to talk a lot. And sometimes I say things and I'm like, oh, well, that sounded weird coming out of my mouth. And I'm like, yeah, I'm glad I said it now versus when I get up there and say it in front of everybody else. So that way I can process those. You know, it's like a dry run when you're doing like a play or like dress rehearsal or something. When you go through and you you get all of the willies out is what I like to call it. You get it all out and then you're able to speak and you're able to say exactly what you want to say. But when you all were singing that song, just breathe I thought wow that is such a powerful song especially right now if you've never heard that song that song is off of Maverick City's Juneteenth album which is so powerful in itself that entire album is powerful but the fact that you chose to sing that song on your birthday which is cool but during Black History Month every time I hear that song I just want to cry because the history that our you know our friends have had to go through in in your generation's past and even now the fact that racism and slavery literally was sent forth to wipe out your entire race of existence but now you're able to breathe things are not perfect but you're able to breathe but why are you able why do you have breath to praise the lord think about the the people the generations that would have been lost the medical advancements, the just common like the potato chip or the, 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 the traffic light, you know, things that, that we know that black inventors have made. But not only that, just the contribution that you all have had to the body of Christ. It literally was made to erase that, to eradicate that voice. But the devil is a liar and he's defeated. Just like when he tried to wipe out all of the race of, of, of boys, period, searching to try to find who Jesus was because he knew a king was coming. And he knew Jesus, he knew he was already defeated. See, that's the thing. We forget about that. But when he was kicked out of heaven, he knew when Adam and Eve sinned, he knew that God was already working on a redemptive plan. He knew that God already had something in motion. And he knew that Jesus was going to come. See, he was there when the plan was written. So he was privy to that information. We forget he was in heaven. We forget that he was the worship leader in heaven. That music, when the glory of God hit him, he was made of instruments and music flew, flowed out of him. We forget about that part when we think about who the devil is. He ain't stupid. He ain't smart either, but he ain't stupid. <laughs> he knows, he knew that there was a way to try to eradicate Jesus, to stop Jesus from being able to do what he was going to do. So he decided he was going to kill all of the baby, the boy babies, two and under. Well, he did it too early because, you know, hey, he did it during the time of Moses. Guess what? Wasn't Jesus, but Moses survived because God had a plan. So every time the devil comes with a plan, God's already 20,000 steps ahead of him. You know why? Because God's been to the end and declared our beginning from it. So even though we knew he knew that things were going to happen. He already created a way for us to get out of it. Amen. So even though racism is still alive, he's already provided us a way out of that. And you know what it is? Love. Perfect love. Like I said, the kind of love that is absent from impurities, separate from hate, and opposite of judgmental. We've all been through things in our life, no matter the color of our skin, that has hurt us, that has has challenged us beyond belief, that has caused us to take a step back and say, whoa, what happened? I got to get my bearings. I just got knocked for a loop-de-loop -loop that I was not prepared for. But we have to keep going because God's made a plan for that. But so Philippians 2, 12 through 15, this is in the New King James as well. And it says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Now, this is who's talking, who wrote the book of Philippians? Paul. So this isn't Jesus talking, but this is Paul. So Paul is giving instructions to the church of Philippi, saying that even though I'm not there, you obeyed, that, that's great, you obeyed the words that I gave you while I was there, but it's even better that you've done it in my absence, even when he's not been present. 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So one of the ways that we walk in love is by worrying about our own self, working out our own salvation. How do we walk out our own salvation? Now, I talked to Lindsay about this this morning. I said, I love to talk about Jesus and I love to hear from him, but I hate it when I have to say things sometimes when he tells me to say things that doesn't isn't just pretty. So as Lindsay said a couple weeks ago, if I step on your toes, it's not me. It's Jesus. OK, so if you get irritated or frustrated, you can talk to Jesus about it, because I promise you it's not from my heart. Because I, when I wrote this out, some of the things I wrote, I was like, can I say that? Because I've been guilty of that, too. And he's like, there's no better person to say it because I'm correcting you as you're helping me get my message out to other people. But the number one way that we can work out our own salvation is to mind your business. Mind your business. It's not our job to judge someone on where they are in their life and how they live it, even when they're family members. Even when they're people that we've known our whole entire life, even when they're people that we've done life with and we've seen them, the Bible tells us that we are to sow the seeds of repentance in their life and let God cultivate and water those seeds so the harvest will come. We can't force that harvest. We can't force others to change. We have to trust God that he will perform his word and he will be the change. I can't make Lindsay change. I can't even make him change his clothes. Like, I mean, something that's not spiritual. Like, I can't make him change his shoes. That's up to him. He's a big boy. If he needs to change his own shoes, he can change his shoes. If he needs to change his clothes, I can tell him, hey, I don't really like that. And maybe you should think about changing. But if he, if he don't want to, he ain't going to. And I can't force that to happen. But when it comes to things of the heart and things of the spirit, sometimes we have to just mind our business and pray for them from afar. Because the closer we get to some people and the closer we get to certain situations, they don't want to hear it. People don't want to hear it all the time. If you come to them constantly correcting them about things, they don't want to hear that. And it doesn't create an environment for a healthy environment for them to be able to grow. We have to trust that we sow those seeds. We can, you know, you correct somebody in love, correct them in the nice way one time and let God work it out in them. So number two, I'm not going to talk much more about that. Something that's a little happier. So the number two way for us to work out our own salvation is to live a cheerful life. So I'm going to read Philippians 2, 12 through 16 again. But this time I'm going to read it in the Passion Translation because it's a little different. So in the Passion it says, My beloved ones, just like you've always listened to, I've taught you in the past, I'm asking you now to keep following my instructions as though I were right there with you. Now you must continue to make this new life fully manifested as you live in holy awe of God, which brings you trembling in his presence. God will continually revitalize you, implanting within you the passion to do what pleases him. Have you ever been burnt out? Whether it's in with God or with ministry or church or your job or your family or just sometimes life in general like things just sometimes get to the point that they're just too yucky (laughs) and you're just like I just need like 20 minutes to just breathe sometimes it's I need 10 years to just breathe sometimes it's I need to just take a step back from the irons that I have my I've thrown into all these different fires and I need to take a step back and pull some of them out and recharge and refocus that's okay That's totally a side note from this. But I feel like somebody needs to hear that. That's okay. The pressure is not all on you. And if it is, you're doing it wrong. Because the pressure falls back on God. If you're doing what he's told you to do, but you're trying to carry the load yourself, then you're doing it wrong. You got to give those back to God and say, okay, help me restructure what you've asked me to do and help me be able to trust you more and to work closer with you. So back to the scripture. So implanting within you the passion to do what pleases you. This is what I was going to say. God will revitalize you. That's what it says. It said God will continually revitalize you. Not just once, but continuously. 
Every time that you feel run down, every time you feel burdened, every time you feel heavy, every time you feel done and you just want to throw it all away and you just need a break and you need to escape and you need to get out of here. See, I've never been one growing up. I was never one to just run. But in my adult life, when things get hard, I have found myself challenged with the initial response of wanting to run instead of to stand and fight. But that's because I've put my trust in myself more so than my trust in God. Because he will continually revitalize me if I let him. He will continue to renew my passion if I let him. Because he's a good God. He didn't call us to just go so far and stop and quit. Actually, we're supposed to, if he's told us to do something, we're supposed to do that until he tells us to do something else. You do, (laughs) I'm a Disney nerd sometimes. And in Frozen 2, one of my very favorite songs in the whole movie is at a very critical point when Anna finds herself all alone because her sister Elsa has just frozen to death, basically given up her life to find out the truth about what happened in their past with their family, which is why they're under this attack. So she's given up her life to find the truth. And that caused her little honest little sidekick Olaf, which is the snowman. He disappeared because the magic was gone. So she finds herself alone in a cave completely by herself when nobody she sings this beautiful ballad about doing the next right thing basically when she knows nothing else what she's supposed to do and where she's supposed to go and how she she does the next right thing sometimes we find ourselves in those seasons when we have to do the last thing that God has told us and it may not seem that it is the right thing to do in that moment But if we do what God has told us, we just keep making those next choices when they're presented to us. The next right thing, the next thing that God tells us to do. We stay in that vein until he changes us and tells us to do something different until he speaks to our heart. Once again, a little side note. Love that movie. Love that song. I'll probably listen to it when this is over now. So live a cheerful life without complaining or division among yourselves. Hmm. We can't even go through the McDonald's drive through <laughs> without complaining <laughs> or getting frustrated. Now, they got to do their part. Sometimes they got to get it together. And we won't even talk about KFC in town because they, <laughs> because they be testing my patience. And they try me sometimes. They tried somebody in our family. I'm not going to say who. And they won't eat there right now for, the, for a little bit because they're just too frustrated. I said I wasn't going to say who it was, so. (laughs) (laughs) So live a cheerful life without complaint. That doesn't mean you can't like, oh, just I'm so upset. I'm so frustrated. I'm so whatever. Like everyone's, yes, we're all human. We're going to complain about something because life is not perfect. Sometimes life. It's horrible. So we have to, sometimes we will complain, and that doesn't mean that God says, oh my gosh, Miranda complained today. We can't, I can't bless her. No, it's talking about your heart. It's talking about your heart. It's saying, live a cheerful life without complaining or division among yourselves, for then you will be seen as innocent, faultless, and pure children of God, even though you live in the midst of a brutal and perverse culture. For you will appear among them as shining lights in the universe, Offering them the words of eternal life. Because of the life that we live, we are called to be bearers of the light. We can't do that if we're not in communion with God. Now, I said the light, not just bearers of light, because there's a lot of light out there. There's a lot of things that can be perceived as light, but we are called to be carriers of the light, the truth. The one true living God, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins and was put in the grave and was there, went to, went to hell and defeated the devil, got the keys to death, hell, and the grave and resurrected on the third day and is now seated in the right hand of God, making intercession on our behalf. That's the light that we are called to carry into our families, into our church, into our community, and ultimately into the world. But what good is a light if we keep it in the back room of our house and refuse to share it? Now, in this building, this room doesn't have any windows, right, that we can see. No windows. 
So if I was to cut the lights off in this room, you would be completely surprised about how actually dark this room is. You cannot see at all, period. Except for we have throughout the room, little nightlights in this room. And those little nightlights put off just enough light so you can see where you're going. Sometimes that's what we look like in our community. Sometimes that's what we look like in our family. We may have family members or friends and people that go to church and they do great things and they seem, you know, like they got it all together, but they're not exuberating the light. They're dark, walking around dark because that light switch hasn't been flipped on on the inside of them or their fire hasn't been lit on the inside of them. The passion for who God says that he or who God is and who they see him has hasn't been lit on the inside of them. But whose job is that? That's our job. Back in the old days, and even sometimes now, some people do this still, but way back then before they had electricity, what did they use? Candles. Something that would burn. And you see the Bible refer to that oftentimes about being set on fire or set ablaze or burn, or they talk about candles. It references that because obviously they didn't have electricity, but that is such a powerful thing to see because I can turn the light onto this classroom, but it doesn't turn a light on into the room over there because it has its own separate circuit has its own breaker has its own system so that light will cut on when you flip that light switch but when I have a candle and I light my candle and I get too close to the shade room what happens to her candle her candle will ignite and then when she gets too close to Miranda what happens to Miranda her candle will ignite and that's what it's called to be carriers of the light. We have to be so consumed and so set on fire with God and in communion with God. We have to be one with God to the point that when we get so close to other people in our community or people in our family or our friends that they can't help but burn. Now, think about it this way. After Jesus rose from the grave, he walked with a couple of the disciples and they didn't recognize who he was but they had he had a, care, a conversation with them and after he revealed they realized who he was and Jesus was gone what did they say did not our hearts burn They knew they should have known because of the way that they felt there in their heart, which we now know is our holy is the Holy Spirit living in us. That's where we receive our direct downloads from heaven. And that's where we feel his presence on the inside of us. Did their hearts not burn? Did they not? How did they not realize is what they were basically saying? Like, duh, we should have known it was Jesus. Like, here he is. He's how he made us feel. Duh. Like, that's the way I interpret it, at least. Like, that's I'm like, oh, man. That was Jesus. Like, I, I should have felt that. Like, duh. But that's how it should be. <laughs> that's how it should be when we get around other people because their hearts should burn. Their hearts should be set on fire for the things of God or at least open to questioning. What is this? Ooh, I'm missing that in my life. Why are they so different? Why do they got a different swagger about them? Like, they walk a little different than I do. I need to figure out what that is. People are seeking for community. I cannot tell you how many times in my life I have said, I need community. I need a community. I need a community. And you hear people all the time, I need a community. I'm just, people are looking for community. They're looking for a place to belong. They're looking for a place that they can be one with a group of people that believe like they believe, or at least allow them to come to a place where they can experience freedom and hope and love and faith and something other than the world has to offer because the longer we live in the world we see that it is a dark and twisted place it is a place that is full of fear a place that is full of intimidation a place that will drag you down but it all appears as glittery fantastic whatever but all that glitters is not gold Another song reference, not Disney, but it's opposite of what they said because they say all that glitters is gold, but it's not. That's the lie that the devil wants us to believe. And that's the lie that Hollywood will paint or just just people in the world is that everything that is shiny and glitters is gold, but it's not. 
It's fake. And sometimes it's so difficult to tell the difference between what is real and what is fake. You have to be trained on how to do that. That's why jewelers, they have these little magnifying, it's basically a magnifying glass, but they put it up to their eye, like an oculus or something, and it's super magnified so that they can see the clarity of a stone. So like if you go, if you go into a pawn shop and you're like, I got this five carat gold diamond ring or five carat diamond ring. I want to sell it. I want to pawn it. Here you go. Have a good day. They're not just going to pay you the thousands of dollars that ring would be worth without checking it out. So they're going to dig their little Oculus out. They're going to look at it, figure out what it is. And they're going to say, um, ma'am, that is a cubic zirconium. That is not a diamond. And I am going to give you $5 for it. It's about what it's worth. And you're, $5? This is real. This is real. No, it's not. Have a good day. But see, people don't always have one of those little magnifying glasses. So they just, when they're lost and they're looking in the world, they don't know. They just see something that they think is community. They see something that they think is an accepting place that loves them. They see something that they think, that they think is going to be a place where they'll fit in and they'll have peace in their heart finally because they found people that love them and will accept them no matter what they look like. But when they get into it, it's not real love. Why? Because it's absent from the presence of God. It's absent from the love of God. It's absent from the Holy Spirit. See, we have the Holy Spirit. When we accept Jesus into our heart, we have access to the Holy Spirit. And he helps us discern what is, what is of God and what is not of God. What is right and what is wrong. What is, what is beautiful in God's eyes and what is disgraceful in God's eyes. Do we make the right decisions all the time? Shoot, no. But that's the beauty of God is that he picks us up. And he dusts the dust off of us. And he says, I still love you. And I still have a purpose for you. And it don't matter what you've done. We're good. We're good people, as they say. But people are looking for that community. And they, some of them, when it comes to the church, they find it very difficult to come to church. The church is called to be a place of belonging. But do people feel comfortable to come to our church and seek hope and healing and a sense of belonging based off of our actions? I read this story on Facebook a couple weeks ago. And so once it gets if I don't know who wrote it. I don't know who it happened to. I don't know that it actually happened, but it's powerful if you think about it. So there was this church and this congregate member I've been going there for years and she got mad and she decided she was going to quit the church so she went to the pastor which was nice a nice thing for her to do and she said pastor I'm just gonna let you know I'm not coming back this is my last Sunday I'm done I'm not coming back and he said well okay well we don't necessarily put you know a stake or claim on anybody we're not going to force you to come back but I would like to know why why the sudden kind of change of heart I thought things were good but you know, we're always looking for feedback, so can you tell me why? And she said, yeah, I can tell you why. It's because of these young adults and these teenagers and the way they come in and they're dressed and the way that they're on their cell phones, just disrespecting God in his house. I'm not for it. I'm not about it. And I cannot be in a church that does that. And he said, okay, well, thank you for, for letting me know. Can I ask you to do me one favor? And she said, well, yeah. And he said, before you go, I would like for you to carry this pitcher of water full to the top and carry it around the whole church about five times and don't spill a drop. Don't do it. If you, if you drop an ounce of it, I'll know, and it, you, you can't do it. I need you to be focused and do it. Can you do that? Yeah, I can do that. That's easy. Just carry this water around. He said, yeah, go ahead. So she did that. She carried the water around her five times. She came back, and she said, see, Pastor, I did it. I'm done. Not an ounce of water is dropped. Everything is still inside the pitcher like you asked me. And he said, great. Now, how many of those young people did you notice on their cell phones or what they had on while you were walking around the building? And she said, well, none. And he said, exactly. When you come into the house of God, your focus is not about other people. Your focus is about on God. 
Your focus is about on worshiping God. It don't matter what other people are doing. They're not going to look like you. They're not going to smell like you. They're not going to have the same attitude. And yeah, they might be on their cell phone. And maybe you think that is disrespectful, but that's not your place to pay attention to. And if you let that distract you from the purpose of coming to church and worship God, then your heart needs to be fixed, not theirs. Your heart has to be right, not theirs. Because if you come to them in a judgmental way and you try to, hey, you can't do that. We are not about that. That's not going to turn them on to the Holy Spirit or to the things of God. That's going to turn them away. And we see people, young people, turning away from the things of God because of that, because of the attitude of the church. Not necessarily just our church, but the church in general. We see so many people, even these famous singers that have been Christian music singers for years and years and years are turning away from the faith and they're denouncing Christianity and denouncing God. Why? Because of judgmental Christians. Now, that's a sad excuse at the same time because they have to get their heart right. But we have to do our part. We have to. Yes, we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We got to mind our business and focus on us and focus on what God's called us to do. And when we come together, it don't matter if they're not doing the things that you think they should be doing. Their worship is just as beautiful as yours is. In the nose, in the nose of God, their fragrance they're putting off is, can be just as holy and just as wonderful as yours is, even though it may not be the same as yours. But if we were all just cookie-cutter Christians the exact same, there would be no diversity. There would be no beautifulness. There would be no, no extravagance. But see, Jesus, our God, is a creator. He's a master artist. He created us all differently. He gave us some funky hair he gave us some with straight hair he gave me straight hair and then I had kids and now I don't have straight hair anymore so I'm trying to figure that out but he gave us all something different and we make up a beautiful picture of the body of Christ we're not all called to be a foot on that body we're not all called to be a liver or a leg or a finger Jesus is the head of the body he's the head of the church we are the rest of the body. So wherever I fall on that body, God put me there and use me. Let me, if I just need to be the pinky toe and help hold a little bit of balance, then that's what I'll do. If I need to be the toenail, honey, and I will add some glitter sparkle to that toenail polish, and I will be the sparkly toenail, sparkliest toenail that ever did sparkle. If that's what you've called me to do, God, then that's what I'll be. I don't care where it is. It could be something as minute as a, let me be a little scar on the leg. I don't care. Something. Just as long as I'm a part of the body, that's all that matters. Just so that I belong to who God, is, who God has called me to be and who he has called us to be as a body in our community. Our attitudes towards others can suck sometimes. I asked him, said, can I say that word? He said, don't make it a habit. He said, I say it, but don't just say it like 20 times in your sermon. I'm like, okay, great. But it really can. My mom would get upset for me for saying that. So she, when I was growing up, we used to say Hoovers, like a vacuum cleaner, like a Hoover vacuum cleaner. I'm dating myself a lot. I am 32 years old. I know what a Hoover vacuum cleaner is. So she would say, that really Hoovers. So <laughs> that, is, that is the whitest thing I've said all day today. <laughs> that really Hoovers. So our attitudes towards other people can Hoover sometimes. It can just absolutely be awful. The words we say to people and the tone of voice we say, sometimes we can mean it with a heart of love, but the way we present it to them comes off as condescending or comes off as not out of love and out of just wanting to correct me or wanting to make me feel lesser than. When we correct people in love, we have to make sure that our heart is right. We have to make sure that the way we deliver it, sometimes you can't correct it in that moment because if you're frustrated, it'll come completely off as being mad or irritated. Sometimes you got to wait a day. Sometimes you got to swallow, let it breathe, as Lindsay says, let it breathe. Sometimes you got to let it breathe and let it lie. And then ask God, is my heart wrong? Or is this something that needs to change? And then you seek guidance in that. When it comes to your church, if you have a problem, Pray about it. That's the only way our mouth should be working. If we have a problem with the church or the problem with the way that the pastor is doing something or the leadership is doing something, we don't need to talk about it to 10 other people and try to get people on our side. We talk to the Lord about it. Because at the end of the, end of the day, the Bible tells us that the pastor 
will not only answer for his actions in his life or her life, they will answer for the actions and the things that they did in the church. And then they will answer for what happens in your life, too, because of what they've taught you. So you ain't got to worry about whether God's going to get them. <laughs> God's going to get them, honey. It's not up to us. We got to take that to God in prayer and say, OK, God, if I'm wrong, fix me. Fix my heart. And if they're wrong, fix them and help me learn how to interact with them. But see, I don't know if you called it. There's a sequence to it. You don't go to God and say, fix them. God, fix him. Like if me and Lindsay are fussing, I don't say, God, you better fix him. Because then I'm wrong. I have to fix myself first. Because I'm responsible for my actions. I'm not responsible for his actions. I'm not responsible for anybody else's actions. But I have to go to God and say, okay, God, here you know what's happened. But here's what's happening. And let me just blurt it all out and talk to you about it. Fix me. If I am wrong, fix me. If he's wrong, you better fix him. Because these hands bow too, so you better fix him. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> but it's a sequence. But it's a sequence. You have to worry about yourself first. Go to God and ask him to work on your heart. And then you can ask, pray for the other people. But we got to get our own heart right. And we find this better. This, there's no better example to this than Jesus. Now, I think it's really cool that my husband is turning 33 today because it's symbolic of something in the Christian walk. <laughs> What'd she say? He is, and I'm not far behind him, unfortunately, so I can't talk too much about it. I'll hit that in September. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Remember, what do we read? What do we read in Philippians 2? What did it say? He will continually revitalize you. Amen. Amen. We can put an amen, period. Or I like exclamation marks. So let's put three exclamation marks behind that and go home. <laughs> but I think it's really, Jesus gives us the perfect example of that. Jesus' ministry started when he was 30 years old. Now, think about that. We always get in a rush about where we're at in our life, and we've not done this, done that, and oh my gosh, I'm getting to this point, and I got to do this, this, and this. Jesus was 30 when his ministry started. He only had what most would consider an active ministry for three years because he was crucified at 33 years old. Now, I said active ministry because, yes, that's when he revealed himself to be the son of God and he started doing miracles and all these really cool things. But the ministry of Jesus started when he was born. It was in the way that he lived his life for the first 30 years that drew people to him and ultimately allowed him to make an impact on their lives in a way that he was able to do in just three short years. Now think about that. He literally changed the entire world in three years. That's a long, like sometimes we're like, gosh, a year is a long time. Three trips around the sun. He changed the world. But he was only able to do that because he lived a life of consecration and dedication and fervent prayer and waiting for the right time for 30 years. Now, he still had communion with God because he was God in the flesh. He was one with God. So when he was 12 years old, I'm sure Jesus got bullied. I'm sure Jesus was in situ. We don't like to think about Jesus like this, but I'm sure Jesus had bodily functions just like the rest of us. He had to go to the bathroom. He probably didn't smell so good at times. His mama probably had to pull a what happened to Lindsay and say, get back in that shower and wash yourself again. <laughs> Dip yourself in the river again. You didn't get clean. I saw you scrub a little bit longer, Jesus. I'm sure Mary had to be all up on him a few times to get him to do just like a normal kid. But he was always one with God. Now, he knew that. He knew that. He was aware of that. He was talking to them in the synagogue as a little boy, amazing them with his knowledge of the scriptures that he would have no business being taught at that point in time. He wouldn't know that except for by divine wisdom and knowledge, right? 
supernatural wisdom, supernatural knowledge. So you can't tell me Jesus didn't know there was power in his hands. As a 12-year-old little boy, somebody come up to him and push him one too many times. Bam, gotcha. Jesus didn't do that. He showed restraint. He knew. He knew the power that he had on the inside of him. But he chose to live a life of consecration. The way he lived his life for those first 30 years set him up to be able to change the world just for the three years. And yes, that was God's plan. And yes, that was God's design. It was great. But what is God's design for you? What are you called to do? What are you called to change? What world are you called to flip upside down? Is it your place of business? Is it, the, is it Walmart when you go there or Food Giant or wherever you go? Is that where you're called to flip upside down for the glory of God? But how are you going to do it? You first have to live that life in private. The way we live our life in what seems like the mundane seasons or just your regular moments of life impacts more people than we realize. And it will set up a future harvest. What does your every life say about you? Those people who are seeking community can seek out or can find the fake churches real fast. Real quick. They can find judgmental people real fast and real quick. It doesn't mean you have to agree with their lifestyle. But it means you have to let God love on them. So how do we become one with our community? There's going to be three ways, and I'm about to end, I promise. I just have a few more scriptures. So how do we become one with our community? We're going to go to John chapter 15. We're going to stay in John for these next three scriptures. This is a good chapter. And I'm going to read it in the Passion Translation. And I don't know, <laughs> I don't know about you, but in my Bible it's read which means that Jesus said it, and if he said it, it's meant to be red because it's in red. That's what Lindsay says. Sorry, I messed your joke up, but that's okay. <laughs> I gave it just a little bit of flair, that's all. So John 15 verses, we're going to do verses 3 through 7. So the number one way that we become one with our community is we join in life union with God. So starting with verse three, it says, the words I have spoken over you have already cleansed you. We could go home right there. Thank you, Jesus. So you must remain in life union with me, for I remain in life union with you. For as a branch severed from the vine will not bear fruit, so your life will be fruitless unless you live your life intimately joined to mine. I am the sprouting vine and you are my branches. As you live in union with me as your source, fruitfulness will stream from within you. But when you live separated from me, you are powerless. If a person is separated from me, he is discarded. Such branches are gathered up and thrown into the fire to be burned. But if you live in life union with me, and if my words live powerfully within you, then you can ask whatever you desire, and it will be done. So we just like to read that scripture about if you ask anything in Jesus's name, then he will do it for you. But there's a lot more to that scripture than we like to put. God is not just a vending machine God where I put 50 cents in and push a button and get something out. We have to do the work ourselves. This says we have to be in life union with God. And then once we are successfully in life union with God, then we we obtain the power on the inside of us through the Holy Spirit. In order to be able to come to God and say, God, I'm asking you this in Jesus' name. And boom, it's done. It's right there with us. But when I was reading this just now, I thought about this. It talks about the fruit that's fallen from the vine. Or the, the vine that's dead and discarded. We don't go to the supermarket and say, I want that fruit that fell on the ground and got squished. I want them rotten tomatoes. I want that that watermelon that's out of date. I want that moldy grape. Like, give it to me. That's what I want. We don't do that. Those most of the time don't even make it to the supermarket. Now, if they do or if they develop mold once they get there, 
How many of us go through and look and try to figure out, oh, nope, that one's a little too mushy, especially on the strawberries. Those things are so easy to mold. But you're looking through and you're trying to find the perfect batch or the batch that at least has maybe one that you can take home real quick and throw away before it gets the rest of them all mushy, right? That's the kind of fruit we're looking for is good, healthy fruit because that other fruit gets discarded. So it's up to us to be in life union with God. So that when God looks at us, he don't see mushy strawberries or mushy fruit, rotten fruit. He sees good, healthy fruit. And other people in the community will come looking for that. And they say, you know what? I see fruitfulness on the inside of them. They may not know what it is, but that's fruitfulness on the inside of them. And it will attract them to the presence of God. It'll attract them to come in the building. So that's, how, that's the first way that we become one with our community is we join in life union with God. And number two, I just kind of talked about it a little bit. We bear fruit. But we're going to go to John 15, scroll down to 16. Still in the Passion Translation. Woo! I love the scripture. It's a good scripture. It says, you didn't choose me, but I've chosen and commissioned you to go into the world to bear fruit. And your fruit will last. Because whatever you ask of my father for my sake, he will give it to you we could actually go on to 17 it says so this is my parting command love one another deeply now when is jesus saying this does anybody know in the timeline of jesus when he's given us these instructions right before the cross so he's saying right at the end like Hey, things about to change up in here. Y'all ain't about to see me no more, but you have to stay in life union with me because of what I've done for you and because of what you've heard from me. Now the responsibility is on you to walk out that lifestyle and to show other people the way, show other people the true light, show other people how to go. Love one another deeply. But you have to, he's commissioned us to bear fruit. And it's the kind of fruit that will remain. It will never wither. It will never dry up if we stay in life union with him. I love it because it talks about him being the vine. And when you see grapes growing on the vine, what they do is they put the, they build the, the stands that the vines go on or the grape vines go on. And once they, the vine starts growing, they help wrap them around that structure for support. We're called to be engrafted into that vine. When old grape branches fall off, the vine dresser, what he does, or she does, is they go and pick those up and they don't just throw them away. If they look like they still have life in them, they pick them up and they tie them into the vine because what happens is it's so powerful, it regrows. And the vine itself will wrap itself back around that, that discarded vine and it will cause new life to come back into it and it will produce grapes. That's what we're called to be. We're called to be engrafted. We are engrafted. When we accept Jesus in our heart, we've become engrafted into that vine. And he wraps his word and his spirit around us. And we latch on to everything that he has for us. And we hold on and we say, okay, no matter what storm comes, no matter what hurricane is coming my way, I will not be moved and I will not be shaken because I am engrafted into this vine. I am who you say I am. I can do what you say I can do. When anxiety comes and when depression comes and when fear comes, I will not be shaken because I have a firm persuasion in who God has called me to be. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world because our power comes from the power source. And when we're engrafted and we hold on to that vine, then we're able to breathe in the very breath of God and we're able to speak the words that God has called us to speak and it will come out of us. Out of our belly shall flow what? rivers of living water not just one river not just a trinkle not just a little fountain that pew pew when it's beautiful and rainy outside but a, a flood a rivers multiple rivers but that can only happen when we bear fruit and when we stay engrafted into that vine it's a decision we have to make because if we don't want to bear fruit and we're okay with just living however then the scripture said earlier that, it, that we'll be discarded and they get burnt 
burn up. Those pieces of the vine that fall off, they just get discarded and burnt. I don't want to be that. We're worth more than that in the eyes of God. And it's not that God's mean and God's doing that. That's our choice. God gives us every opportunity to be in life union with him. It's our choice. It's our decision on whether or not we, we go after that. And the last way that we become one with our community is we have to serve them. Sometimes that one's a little hard, but we're going to go to John chapter 13. And I'm going to read verses 12 through 17 in the Passion Translation. So, yes, this is during the Last Supper. And the last two points in those scriptures have been at the very end, near the end of the, of the Last Supper, when Jesus is, the next thing that happens after those is Jesus goes into the garden and, man, there pops up Judas and the soldiers and Peter cuts the guy's ear off and Jesus heals the guy's ear and then Jesus goes with them peacefully. But we're going to back up a little bit to the middle of the Last Supper. Because we are called to be one with our community by serving them. John 13, 12 through 17 says this. After washing their feet, Jesus put his robe on and returned to his place at the table. Do you understand what I just did, Jesus said? You've called me your teacher and Lord, and you're right, for that's who I am. So if I'm your teacher and Lord and have just washed your dirty feet, then you should follow the example that I've set for you and wash one another's dirty feet. Now do for each other what I have just done for you. I speak to you timeless truth. A servant is not superior to his master, and an apostle is never greater than the one who sent him. So now put into practice what I have done for you, and you will experience a life of happiness enriched and untold ble- with untold blessings. So we're called to serve others. Now, thank you, Jesus, that I have never been called to physically wash somebody's feet because they kind of freak me out just a little bit. So, and now if God told me to do that, then by golly, I'm going to do that because I'm going to do what God told me to do. But it's not necessarily talking about the physical washing of the feet. When you read back behind that, and I didn't read all that just because of time, but when he started to wash the disciples' feet, Peter said, now, you know, Peter, he stay ready. You know, Peter, like, he, he about that life. So Peter said, I'm not worthy for you to, to wash my feet. I'm not even worthy to latch your shoes, Jesus. How are you going to wash my feet? And he told Peter, he said that, you know, he said, I'm washing your feet because this is what the Lord told me to do. And you'll understand in full later on. He said, well, then, Lord, don't just wash my feet, but my whole body, too. We have to be at that point to where we are so consumed with what God wants for us that we don't care to step out of our comfort zone. Now, Jesus, being their master and their teacher, he humbled himself. He took his over over robe off and got in the dirty floor, which we know back then most of their floors were just dirt bottom floors or clay floors. They didn't have these nice concrete and you know carpet and wood and tile and all the nice luxuries that we have today. It was just bare floors. Jesus got down on his hands and knees with a bowl of water and he washed their dirty feet. And he did that as a sign of, number one, I'm preparing you for what's to come. I'm showing you that you cannot enter into heaven. This is this was something that he did that set them apart from everybody else that he administered to. These were his people. And later on in the scripture, you see where Jesus is talking to God when he's in the garden and he says, He says to God, he says, I have done everything that I have been able to do that you've asked me to do. I've ministered. I've done everything you have. And those people that have been there with me, remember them. He asks, he brings them up to God, but that's how it set them apart. God knew exactly who he was talking about, but Jesus prepared them. Not only did he prepare their hearts and their spirits, but their bodies as a sign of surrender and servanthood the saying that if he is God made flesh and he can wash their feet how much more can we do to our community how much more can we do to our brothers and sisters and the hurt and the broken it doesn't mean that you have to necessarily go and build a bridge for somebody or build a build a set of steps on the front of their house but sometimes it's 
cooking a meal. Sometimes it's just being an ear. Sometimes it's just being a friend, a friendly face, somebody to smile at. But Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and we are no better than anybody else. We have no right to judge them. Jesus didn't look at them and said, Peter got some hammer toes, got some, got some fur on them feet. I ain't touching them. I'd be gagging. And I'm sure when I go get a pedicure, those people probably don't like my feet either, and that's okay. Thank God for them because I will pay them money so that I don't have to do it myself. But we can't judge other people based off of what they look like, about what they smell like, what they sound like. And this is, I really am ending with this. We have to create a safe place for the lost and the hurting and the broken to come and get help. Oftentimes the church is referred to as a spiritual hospital. How many of you have heard that before? We're called to be a hospital. Well, what does a hospital do? It's a place for the hurting and the broken to come and get healing. Now, a natural hospital won't turn down people based off of what they look like, what they smell like, what their past life has been like, the way they live their life now, how they identify themselves. Hospital don't care about that. They don't even care. They don't care about what insurance they have whether they're in network, out of network, if, it's a, if they're broken and hurting, they have to legally help them. That's what a hospital does. Spiritually, we're called to do that. It don't matter what they look like, what they're, how they're living their life, we're called to love on them and to create a safe place for them to come in and experience the love of Jesus. We... What gives us the right to think that we're better than anybody else? We're not. I'm like Peter. I'm not even worthy enough to, in the natural, to unlatch Jesus' sandal, let alone let him wash my feet. But through God and the grace that he has given us, if God can save me and God can change my life and God can empower me and give me strength and give me peace in my mind and peace in my body and, the, and peace in my emotions, then I know God can do it for anybody. Because I have been in the lowest of the lows and I've been at the highest of the highs. But the one true thing is we find it in Psalms where David is talking to God and he says, where can I go that I can escape your presence? If I go to the highest of heavens, there you are. And if I make my bed in Sheol or in the very depths of the earth, you're there with me. When you get to know that side of God, then you will love everybody. Period. End of story. But the other thing I want to point out about a hospital is this. A hospital is not a permanent residence. People don't go into the hospital hoping to live there for the rest of their life, right? They go into the hospital, they get their healing, they get some medicine, get a sling on their broken arm, and they get sent home, right? Sometimes that happens here in church. Sometimes it's hard to see that because it's almost like a revolving door. You have people come and they may come one service and they don't come back or they may come for six months and then they don't come back and you're like, well, what's going on? I feel like that they're called to be here. But sometimes people are only called to be here just to get the healing and the help that they need and then they're discharged, as the hospital would say, to go back into the world and to help other people and to do other things. Some people will come just to get healing and then they'll leave, but that's not for us to worry about. That's for us to focus on what God has asked us to do and leave the rest on Him. And there will be people that come. There'll be people that come and they'll stay for two, three weeks and then we won't ever see them again. And it's not because we're doing something wrong. Sometimes it's because we're doing something right. Because sometimes people just need that. And then they go to what God's called them to do. I can't say what God's called them to do. It's not my place to ask that or to judge them. My place is to, to obey the voice of God that he's called for this house. And I really, me and Lindsay have been talking about this and we really believe that we're called to be a light in this community. And we're called, like the scripture said we read earlier, to be light bearers. 
So when people see us and see how hard we burn with passion for God and the true passion of God, that they can't help but be drawn to that. And then how exciting will that be to see them carry that torch out to their families and to their part of the community and the people that they associate with and hang out with. How, do, how much joy can we find in that? Not that we're looking for that. I could care less if we had a thousand people ever come through these doors. It's about the one. The one that it changes their life forever. Amen. A shepherd leaves 99 sheep to go after the one that's missing. A good shepherd does that. We have the best. I'm not talking about Lindsay. I'm talking about God. We have the best shepherd who cares for us. And he's put his mark on us. Just like back then they would put a tracker or a tag on the sheep or some kind of significant a ribbon or something to say, this is my sheep. So if that sheep gets lost or gets on somebody else's property, they know whose sheep that is. Or if, or if an animal comes through and takes that sheep, they know whose sheep that is when they find that. God has put his mark on us, each and every single one of us. So when the devil comes in and tries to discourage you or tries to fight you or tries to bring opposition, then when God looks down, he sees that mark and he says, no, that's mine. Now you've entered into my territory. Game on, devil. They're my child. But we have to access that power. We have to access that presence of God. We have to let the Holy Spirit rise up on the inside of us and say, God, I'm willing, I'm able, and I'm excited about what you have in store for me. Amen.